facts. This is American History TV, all weekend on C-SPAN 3. Next, on Lectures in History, Rutgers University professor Jefferson Decker teaches a class on the history of the environmental movement and laws and litigation having to do with natural resources. He describes the relationship between private property and government regulation and explores who is legally allowed to represent environmental interests in court. His class is about an hour. So today we're going to do a, doing a class on environmental law and litigation in the United States. All right? um, I'm not going to cover everything there is to say about the subject, um, which could obviously be an entire course um, in its own right. Uh, but rather today I'm going to focus on a few recurring sort of big picture problems um, that environmental issues pose uh, for the subject matter of this class, namely law and society. All right? Again, if you remember, we went back to the sort of day one, day two of this class, and we talked about what law and society is. Uh, we talked about how law and society is often the study of law and legal issues outside of the box of legal doctrine or sort of outside of the box of legal logic. All right? um, so we're going to be looking at um, environmental law and litigation, um, not simply through questions in American legal doctrine, uh, but more broadly as kind of social, philosophical um, um, issues to grapple with, right? Uh, we also talked at the beginning of the beginning of the semester how law and society um, deals at times in aggregates, right? Um, that is the sort of big pictures or the effects of large numbers of kind of individual personal disputes um, on the big picture, all right? And we'll be dealing and thinking in aggregates a little bit today as well, all right? Um, it's a class that's going to lead to a couple of big questions, all right? Uh, big question number one, um, how much can we regulate private property um, in the interest of protecting the environment? All right. Uh, big question number two, who actually gets to advocate on behalf of the environment or environmental issues in our courts? Okay. Um, those are the two things we're going to um, be focusing on. All right. I'm going to begin today by offering you a kind of brief background on environmental change in U.S. history. Um, including what was and what was not kind of distinctive about uh, the consciousness we refer to as environmentalism uh, when it came on the scene in the mid-20th century. Um, and then, I want to introduce, then I'm going to introduce you to these two, two sorts of problems. All right? Um, uh, so here, here we go, uh, kind of prologue um, about the environment. All right? Um, or as, there's some, as, we, some, as William Cronin famously referred to that, it as changes in the land. All right? Um, in many ways, environmental change has been a constant in American life. All right? um, early European settlers to, say, the, uh, the part of North America now known as New England uh, were amazed by the absolute diversity of plant life and the abundance of animals they found there. Um, one observer described the arrival of alewives, a kind of uh, herring, um, to upstream spawning grounds, um, quote, in such multitudes as almost incredible. Uh, pressing up such shallow waters as will scarce permit them to swim. Um, another colonist speculated that they might be able to walk across streams on the backs of these fish uh, without even getting their feet wet. Um, the same went for waterfowl. Um, if I should tell you, one man wrote, um, how some have killed 100 geese in a week, 50 ducks in a shot, 40 teals at another, it might be counted as impossible. Um, Europeans depict, uh, visiting the New World depicted indigenous villages as teeming with fresh vegetables, um, and um, indigenous peoples as muscular um, and healthy and well-fed. Right? Um, they were the product of what nature's abundance had made possible. All right? Again, it's from the Jamestown Project, early, um, early depiction of, um, um, of what we now know as Na Native Americans, right? uh, uh, roasting the abundant fish here, um, uh, speared with their kind of muscular uh, bodies and frames um, exposed. All right. Now, um, in recent years, historians and others have questioned whether some of these reports um, of, of abundance, this kind of image of an American Eden uh, filled with um, bountiful plant and animal life, um, uh, were themselves kinds of the you know, products of history, products of more recent changes in the land, right? Uh, we now know in ways that early American colonists didn't. Um, 
um, that uh, Native American populations had been, in many cases, decimated uh, by disease um, that had been introduced to North, uh, introduced to the Americas via the Caribbean or Mexico or South America many years before um, European colonists reached um, Upper North America. All right, um, that is, there there are theories that this kind of vast abundance um, that early colonists saw uh, was a kind of um, uh, product of uh, natural, rapid natural restocking after the normal predators, right? The indigenous peoples um, had been decimated by other causes, all right? Um, for that matter, there's a whole series of historical work going on right now about the vast historical changes that, uh, uh, that human beings had caused um, uh, going back basically to the sort of dawn of uh, humanity as a species, all right? Um, but the thing is, right, you've got to start somewhere, right? And one of the things about starting around new contact is you, be, you can begin to um, start telling a story about how the land changed, right? Um, how the environment changed in a particular region um, as, you start, uh, as you start going forward, right? Uh, we know quite a bit about how colonization uh, came to radically reshape uh, the very environment of, of, say, New England or the, uh, um, the future United States uh, of America more generally. Um, and I can run through a few, of, a few of the major changes right now. All right? Um, first off, right, and you can sort of imagine this, in a, you know, imagine this kind of abstractly as you go along, right? Forests got cleared for farms, right? Uh, trees got cut down, uh, stumps pulled out, rocks, rocks plowed, plowed out. Uh, wildlife, native wildlife, got replaced with domestic, domestic animals. Um, many of them imported, right, mostly imported from Europe, okay? European pigs and cows replacing the, the native deer, um, deer or elk, right? Um, you see, begin to see change in the land that way, all right? Um, in much of the northern United States, beaver um, uh, were uh, hunted nearly to local extinction, um, in the early years of American colonies, in, in the early, in, during the U.S. colonial period, right? Um, this not only took a, uh, one element of native, li native wildlife out of the picture, um, it meant that beavers stopped building beaver dams um, and stopped flooding the landscape with, uh, with water as they um, periodically set up ways to, to uh, what, what set up ponds to, to hunt for fish. All right, um, so you have a drying out of the land, right, as well as it's being turned uh, from forest into, agri into agriculture. Um, you have water um, that had once uh, flowed very slowly from rainfall down into the Atlantic Ocean, uh, increasingly rushing through rapidly moving streams um, and rivers uh, toward that final destination um, as the land around it gradually dried out. All right. Um, Many of the fish I mentioned a few minutes ago um, gradually die out, um, either through habitat destruction, uh, man-made dams blocking spawning paths, um, or, or through overfishing, um, uh, destroying the ability of fish to, you know, to, to reproduce and to come back. All right? Um, so you start seeing, right, number of different areas, broad changes to the, broad changes to the local environment. All right? Um, Look, again, these changes to the land, right, as William Cronin famously called them, were not without their contributions to humanity, right? Um, it's also in New England, along some of these um, same fast-moving rivers and streams, that the United States began its Industrial Revolution uh, by figuring out, um, for example, how to turn cotton into fabric at high speed, all right? Um, this was one step toward the United States emerging as a global economic power, um, as well as a revolution in the way that we eventually make and eventually come to buy and enjoy various different things. Um, and of course, that industrial revolution caused many more changes to the land, right? As we search for coal and oil eventually uh, to fire our factories and power our trucks, uh, pushed agriculture into new um, and sometimes marginal climates, uh, crisscrossed the landscape first with train tracks and then with highways, all right? Um, now, um, at various points in that history, right, at various points in that history from, again, a myth, perhaps semi-mythical American Eden 
um, toward a more industrial present, right? Uh, some of Americans came to question the kind of ecological havoc um, that ensued from all this uh, production. Um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a number, number of prominent citizens uh, with support from President Theodore Roosevelt uh, became seriously worried that the United States was using up its non-renewable resources far too quickly. Uh, conservationists, as these people became known, uh, worked to set aside forests, um, mountains full of minerals um, uh, for use by future generations, um, as well as to preserve some especially beautiful locations for parks. Um, during the New Deal response to the Great Depression in the 1930s, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt and people um, uh, working for him tried to bo both boost employment um, and, uh, and restore the planet uh, by hiring the unemployed for various conservation programs, planting trees to bring back ground cover, um, trying to mitigate the horrible dust bowls um, that played the Great Plains during that era. All right. Um, but a crucial change and a crucial moment came in the mid-1960s, um, which saw the rise of modern environmentalism in the United States. Okay? Um, over the course of that decade, and, um, Americans found themselves galvanized on environmental and ecological issues um, in a num on a number of different fronts. Um, some of those were intellectual. Um, uh, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, um, an account of how chemical pesticides had worked their way up, worked their way up the food chain, um, and uh, could potentially fatally poison birds and fish, uh, became a kind of national sensation um, and an inspiration that made um, Americans question the num both the quantity um, and the types of pesticides um, they've been pumping into their um, environment. Um, certain public events, a massive oil spill in California's Santa Barbara uh, Channel uh, that ended up washing up on the California's, um, uh, you know, previously pristine beaches. Um, the ignition of a decently sized body, you know, part of a decently sized body of water, uh, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, uh, thanks to de uh, decades of accumulated pollution, also got people's attention, right? We generally tend to think of water as something one uses to put out fires, not something that spontaneously seems to combust, okay? Um, it raises questions about how much, what exactly have we been, people been putting, um, putting there, right? Um, and what other damage it was potentially doing, all right? Um, and the evidence that Americans were despoiling nature um, or the natural world was sort of, um, becoming a kind of overflowing sewer uh, was not limited to public events like oil spills or river fires, all right? Middle-class Americans in many of the country's rapidly expanding suburbs began to see how an overtaxed natural world um, allowed their own kind of personal waste to come bubbling back into their lives, all right? Um, overtaxed septic systems, right? These, um, uh, uh, these big sort of tanks that many suburban houses place in the backyard um, in which one flushed one's, uh, uh, where everything that came down the toilet, right, uh, sat and percolated for a moment before uh, ideally percolating in the groundwater, uh, regularly started um, percolating back up through the grass um, in, in communities where too many septic tanks were placed too close together. Uh, without adequate space for water to dissipate. Um, um, uh, suburban homeowners started uh, turning on the tap of their um, tap of their sink and pouring glasses of what became sometimes known as white beer, um, pictured over here. That is tap water uh, that has been sufficiently polluted with de uh, detergents. Uh, that have leached their way back into wells and into the water supply, uh, that you get this kind of frothy detergent head um, on, a, on a glass of water, all right? Um, these combined experience, right, Sometimes, some of them public, some of them personal, uh, some of them intellectual arguments made in books, some of them coming out of everyday life. Um, um, you know, help to begin to develop a kind of different kind of consciousness 
about one's place in the world and one's place on the earth, all right? Um, far more than the conservationists had a few generations earlier, environmentalists began asking people to think about the aggregate of it, effects of their actions um, on the health of the planet in general, all right? What one dumped or threw away could no longer be completely forgotten, right? Uh, the Earth no longer had a limitless capacity to swallow up and take care of whatever we no longer needed um, or no longer wanted, all right? Environmentalists also began asking Americans to see the world in ecological terms. Um, that is to see how many different plants and animals sustain one another, right? you know, produce this sort of complicated web of life, all right? Um, that is, they, they asked people to see the earth ecologically and to see their own actions um, as something that could potentially impact an ecosystem um, and, and ultimately disrupt a habitat, all right? Environmentalists also began to argue that natural beauty and wild things were worth protecting for their own sake, right? Uh, not, simply to, uh, not simply for their future harvest on behalf of humanity, all right? Um, so while um, conservationists right, tried to uh, scientifically manage forests um, in order to make sure that we could uh, spread the timber harvest out over multiple generations, um, environmentalists started talking about setting aside wilderness areas permanently, right? Uh, to keep old forests wild, right? Uh, to, keep them, um, uh, to keep them safe from any future development, right? Uh, keep them safe from future generations, not save, not, not, not save them for them, okay? Um, by the late 1960s and into the early 1970s, you have a kind of bipartisan era uh, where this new consciousness begin, begins to show itself in major legislation. Um, legislation passed by Democratic Congresses, but often and often um, and mostly signed by Republican presidents. All right, uh, you had the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969, um, the uh, uh, the first Earth Day that appears a big celebration of the environment uh, in 1970. Um, you see the Endangered Species Act in 1973. Um, other bills, Clean Air Acts, Clean Water Acts, um, designed to clean up rivers, reduce air pollution. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency um, comes into existence during this period. Um, um, again, environmentalism gets embraced by certain members of Congress in both major political parties. Congressmen like Mo Udall and Gaylord Nelson on the Democratic side, uh, people like uh, John Saylor um, and uh, Senator John Heinz on the Republican side. All right, um, there's a lot of uh, productive action. Right, this consciousness makes its way um, into legislation, um, and yet, for all of its early bipartisan appeal, environmental consciousness could. Uh, be and in some ways was a kind of uneasy fit for certain elements of the U.S. Uh, political system and especially for certain elements of the U.S. legal system. Again, the U.S. legal system, as we've talked about previously in this class, perhaps ad nauseum, um, is based on kind of an Anglo-American tradition in which the basic units of society tend to be rights-bearing individuals. All right. Um, that is, most of what we do in our everyday life is supposed to be of little interest to the state, uh, so long as what we're doing doesn't harm anyone else in the process of our doing it. All right? Um, um, oh, sorry, I jumped ahead here, um, right back. All right? Um, um, and yet one of the most fundamental realizations of the environmental movement, right, was the idea that so many of the things we do in our everyday life, right, how many times we run the dishwasher, uh, whether we walk to a grocery store or take a car, um, has some potential to harm the world around us, right? Um, that harm in each particular case might be pretty close to microscopic, right? Uh, but in aggregate, right, the accumulative effects of millions of dishwasher runs um, or day-to-day, -day, uh, or car trips, uh, you know, conducted day after day by millions of different people, ultimately might not, right? Um, and so as environmentalism became a mass movement in the later decades of the 20th century, U.S. courts had to begin to think precisely how to square it 
uh, with existing U.S. legal traditions um, and inherited legal doctrines and inherited precedents. Okay. Um, and I want to talk for much of the rest of the class today about two of the big conflicts uh, from my perspective that ensued um, as a result of this. Okay. Just to now the right slide. All right. Um, one place where environmentalism placed a kind of almost immediate challenge uh, was on a question of property rights, um, especially in the context of land and real estate. All right. Uh, again, now the the notion that governments exist at least in part to protect private property um, is something that goes deep into the kind of deep into the American experience and deep into the philosophical tradition that helped um, um, inspire America's founding fathers. All right, um, um, it's an associate, right, idea associated with the English philosopher John Locke. Um, the governments exist primarily to pr- protect life, liberty, and property. Um, and while Thomas Jefferson may have uh, replaced the word property with a more mellifluous uh, pursuit of happiness, right, in her own Declaration of Independence, um, he didn't necessarily mean to change the entire underlying uh, theory um, uh, be- behind there, okay? Um, that is, it's one of the things that's supposed to separate a society with a purposefully limited government from a society with an authoritarian or totalitarian uh, sort of government is the idea that a limited government can't just willy-nilly take your stuff, okay? Um, a willy-nilly is a very serious academic formal term uh, for this kind of stuff, right? Um, and again, this idea was uh, included explicitly in our Bill of Rights, um, including in the um, end of the Fifth Amendment, um, which concludes, nor shall private property, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Um, in other words, the government may someday need to knock down your home to build a highway or flood your, harm, flood your farm to build a reservoir, right? Uh, but if and when that happens, it has to pay you for the property it took um, and or destroyed. Um, and that payment itself um, is meant to be, ought to be, at least one significant check on the kind of overuse or misuse of this power, technically known as eminent domain, uh, since the government would have to convince other taxpayers to foot the bill for anything, um, any sort of acquisition. All right? Um, now, uh, controversies over property rights in America existed long before environmentalism emerged as a social movement in the mid, mid-20th century. Uh, one of the changes in the land I didn't mention earlier in the lecture uh, was some of the havoc wreaked by, by pigs, European pigs, um, on, uh, on colonial, colonial North America, all right? Told you guys I'd get back to the pig obsession later on in the semester, right? Um, uh, according, to, uh, according to English tradition, right, um, you could own a pig and brand a pig, but you could let it loose, let it loose in the woods uh, uh, to forage on acorns um, or other kinds of uh, f- food it could come up with, all right? Um, but when you introduced uh, European pigs into North America, especially when you set pigs loose to forage in the lands uh, controlled by your Native American neighbors, right, um, all sorts of uh, conflicts tended to ensue. Um, the pigs trampled or, um, or devoured uh, gardens of Native Americans um, who didn't have the tradition of fencing off property to keep uh, neighboring swine out, right? Uh, they attacked and devoured um, uh, shallow water oyster beds um, that had provided an important source um, of forage protein for, uh, for, for many indigenous tribes. All right? um, in essence, these were right, the, these disputes right, sometimes led to war all right? um, over actual, right, actual fighting between neighbors. Right? Uh, but they can also be imagined in some ways as a kind of property rights dispute, right? Um, who has the right to let his pig go where? Um, how do you enforce a right? Um, um, how do you declare something is yours and not part of a kind of, kind of common trust, right? Uh, there for the taking. Um, how, do you, um, um, how do you claim and try to enforce uh, a certain kind of property right? Okay. Um, all right, so again, these are not um, by no means particularly new or, 
um, or original kind of issues. Um, um, there are issues that go back to the go back to the very beginning, right? There are issues that continue in questions over when it's permissible to say, "Dam or divert a river for energy or irrigation," um, and to bribe downstream users um, from the water to which the, they become accustomed. All right, um, but the rise of environmentalism puts some of these issues um, back on the agenda and puts them on the agenda in different ways. All right. Again, one of the things that happens, what happens when you start thinking like an environmentalist um, that is thinking ecologically about the potential for seemingly small actions to disrupt a wider web of relationships uh, that hold a habitat and hold nature together, right? Um, um, one of the things you might start thinking about is how clearing land for, uh, for construction, right? Uh, might remove the cover and camouflage that small animals need in order to uh, stay safe from predators, right? Or how flattening the land to make possible a suburban subdevelopment, right, uh, could disrupt the natural runoff patterns um, that divert, uh, that bring rainwater into the water table or into streams or into creeks um, and make neighboring properties, neighboring properties that didn't profit, profit necessarily at all from your construction project, uh, to flooding. All right. Um, how some large birds of prey need many square miles of uninterrupted forest to comfortably hunt for food. All right. And how eliminating even a small part of that area might turn out to be disastrous for them. All right. Um, how filling in a swamp could rob an entire region of its most natural means of filtering uh, water and restoring its quality. All right. Um, and so. Um, that is, right, in all these examples, um, you might think and you might wonder uh, much more than people had done a generation before about how the things you do have effects that go far beyond the property line, right? Or the things that other people do um, may have, right, with their own private property may have profound effects on you um, and your world um, or, the right, or the natural world you're hoping to sustain, okay? Um, you might think much more carefully about just what people should be able to do um, with their stuff, right? Um, and to what degree, right, um, what degree you might want to have a say in it, all right? Um, now, it's not as if there wasn't already an existing tradition in American law uh, for people and communities um, of having an opinion about what other people do with their private property. All right. Um, back in 1926, in a Supreme Court uh, case called Euclid v. Ambler, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court basically okayed uh, the basic forms of what we now know as zoning. Um, that is, telling people that they can write constructing, you know, private housing or, or private com commercial buildings. Um, um, that they can only be a certain size or they need to have a certain mix or lack of mix of commercial and residential kind of use um, or that you can't put commercial use too close to places where people live, all right? Um, and for the most part, environmentalists sort of began to hope to expand on that kind of principle, right, uh, to justify more intervention um, into private development um, in the interests of uh, better protecting habitats, uh, better protecting ecosystems, um, uh, better protecting natural values. All right. Um, uh, but some par parts of the movement wondered if that concept, um, um, if if that was enough, really. In, in essence, they wondered whether the the concept of private property that Americans had inherited and developed over so many years. Uh, was ultimately flexible enough for that sort of task. All right. As early as 1971, the law professor Joseph Sachs, um, one of the leading minds of the environmentalist movement, um, as well as a, um, um, a, a kind of theorist of law and politics more generally, um, suggested in a law review article that the American understanding of property had become kind of so tilted toward the rights of property owners um, that it could that it would ultimately inhibit any real chance to save the planet. All right. Um, Americans, Sachs argued, needed a new language of what he called public rights, 
um, which could justify the more extensive regulation of private property needed to protect the environment with the same power uh, that sort of Lockean notions of private property rights um, had long protected the prerogatives of individual property owners, um, um, individual people, all right? Um, one of the battlegrounds um, um, battlegrounds for both for these concepts, right? Um, battlegrounds over the concept of environmentalism and property rights uh, ended up being the state of California. Um, in the 1970s, the state passed a kind of landmark coastal act, uh, which was designed to protect one of the state's best known and, and most loved assets, right? That beautiful string of beaches and cliffs up and down the Pacific coast uh, from the top of the state down to the Mexican border. Uh, from overdevelopment, environmental damage, and public exclusion. Um, the Coastal Act created a new agency, the California Coastal Commission, uh, which became charged with protecting the environmental quality of and public access to the state's beaches. Um, that agency took a hardball approach, um, with a staff of hard-charging environmentalists and reveled in being, as they called it, young, naive, and proud. It began using its power to reject building permits for new construction, uh, to block potentially damaging construction or demand that homeowners give something up, um, often a public easement across a dry beach um, or a path from their property on the road to the ocean in exchange for a building permit. Um, in private correspondence, commission members admitted that working through regulation in this way, that is, uh, regulating private property rather than using eminent domain to take it and, and compensate owners for it, um, 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 was in certain ways a chance to do a kind of potentially big job on the cheap. Um, there are a number of advantages in relying on regulation as a major means of implementing the Coastal Plan, the Commission's chief planner explained in 1975. Primary among them is that regulation doesn't require the immediate expenditures of large sums of public money, all right, as do acquisition techniques. Again, the idea was to get as many concessions as possible um, without taking property outright and having to pay just compensation, all right? Going back to Euclid, right, V. Ambler, the course has said, well, property is not necessarily a unitary thing, right? You can make conditions on the use of private property, right? Um, the Coastal Commission was kind of saying, let's try to figure out um, by ourselves and in the court um, how many conditions we can put, off, you know, put on private property um, in the interest of saving the environment and protecting the public's interest um, to beach access, um, to natural beauty, um, uh, to, um, uh, uh, to the Pacific Ocean, all right? Um, needless to say, the Coastal Commission was not always particularly popular with coastal landowners and developers. Um, they weren't also particularly popular with a number of conservative lawyers and legal scholars, all right? A, a, a conservative legal scholar named Bernard, Bernard Segan began uh, to write scholarly articles and newspaper columns arguing that um, these sorts of new land use regulations were undermining the foundational basis of a market-based economy, um, the institution of private property, right? If we could never, if we never could know what we could do, right? If we're never quite sure what we could do with our property, um, if we could never quite sure whether we could build on a plot of land we bought, Segan pointed out, uh, people would never invest money to acquire it in the first place. Um, they wouldn't know what right, their own stuff is worth. All right? uh, land in America is increasingly valued as a priceless resource, explained Ronald Zumbrun, a one-time lawyer for California Governor Ronald Reagan, who made his name as a property rights defender in the 1970s and 1980s. No longer is it seen as a commodity to be bought, sold, and used freely. Uh, but rather as earned respect as a resource to be conserved and managed in the public interest. By the way, that was all considered negative by, right, the negative connotation by Zumbrun there. Um, something that should be a commodity to be bought and sold uh, was being, being transformed into this, uh, public, this public trust um, um, in which the government, not individual homeowners and contractors and real estate speculators, uh, would be in charge of California's future development. Um, Zumbrun eventually formed a nonprofit legal group uh, called Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, which in the 70s and 80s brought case after case against the California Com Coastal Commission, um, eventually winning a big one called Nolan v. Coastal California Commission 
at the U.S. Supreme Court in 1987. Um, Nolan didn't come close to overturning the Coastal Act entirely. It simply decided that certain practices of the Coastal Commission were inconsistent with the Fifth Amendment's protections on private property. Um, there is another case currently winding um, itself through the courts right now, though, uh, which it tends to take a bigger crack at the act itself um, and a bigger crack at the legal justifications uh, 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 for, co- for coastal land use regulation. Uh, we'll see over the next uh, couple terms in the Supreme Court um, where that ends up going. All right. But my larger point in this, right, is not about winner, is less about winners or losers or about trying to predict the future, uh, so much as about um, um, raising the question that these issues aren't ultimately necessarily easy. Uh, most of us probably think that the government has a legitimate right, um, um, legit, legitimate right to do something to make sure that private economic uh, decisions don't unnecessarily destroy ecologically sensitive um, or uniquely beautiful parts of our planet. Um, uh, most of us probably want to uh, protect ourselves in some ways, right, uh, from the uh, disruption, disruptive actions of some of our neighbors, right? Um, at the same time, many of us probably like our stuff, right? Um, and more to the point, would be frustrated and anxious if we invested big money in something with the ex- expectation of being able to develop it um, and then found the rug getting pulled out from under us later on. All right. Um, my point is that by teaching us, in essence, to, to see and think ecologically, environmental, environmentalism made us much more attuned to the kinds of public harms uh, that we ought to look out for and potentially try to stop, right? Uh, but in doing so, then, it created a kind of whole new set of political and legal conflicts, right, over the degree to which the government ought to be in the business um, of regulating, regulating private property and to what ultimate ends, all right? Um, and that, again, happens in part because there's a kind of... Uh, um, uh, right, uneasy way for the for a legal system that's based on notions of rights-based individualism, um, uh, set up in ways des- by design to to protect private property uh, from being able to um, uh, to to figure out just just how the government can um, or should or should not uh, be allowed to regulate it. Okay. Second, all right, second big issue, our final big issue, um, activism in the courts, all right. Um, another big question that comes out of um, the environmental o- awakenings of the 1960s um, is who actually gets to practice environmental law and how, all right. Um, um, in the ideal world, you've probably got from your high school civics textbook, uh, the legislative branch passes laws, right, and the executive branch inf- then enforces them. It's all pretty simple, right? Uh, but in the real world, things are sometimes a little more complicated than that, all right? Sometimes the legislature writes a law, um, but the executive branch has to write enabling regulations, which may or may not actually follow the or- original intent of the law in the first place. Uh, sometimes the executive branch issues an executive order um, uh, that is arguably in violation of statute or the Constitution. All right. Get it. Hold off on you. All right. Um, um, sometimes the um, uh, sometimes the executive branch fails for some reason, out of choice or sometimes incompetence to enforce the law um, that's supposed to be on the books. Um, and in all of these cases, parties with an interest in the case might go to the courts. Uh, to try to rescind an unlawful regulation or executive order or to demand that the executive branch um, enforce the law in what it it deems to be the the right and proper way, all right? Now, um, American legal legal system or American legal doctrine has a a concept known as standing to sue um, that helps to explain who can and cannot go to the courts to resolve a dispute. Um, the basic principle of standing, right, um, is that only people who have suffered some kind of clear injury or damage uh, are allowed to file a lawsuit, all right? Um, that is, if um, um, Harmon beats up Mitchell, right, um, only Mitchell, or in the case of a fatal beating, perhaps his heirs, right, 
uh, can go to the courts to, uh, to get damages uh, back, back from Harmon. All right. Natalia or some other kind of third party who just, right, uh, who, who doesn't have an injury or doesn't have a harm in the case can't file a lawsuit, um, you know, um, and try to reclaim, you know, try to, you know, a, a lawsuit herself. All right. Um, fairly simple concept, right? You need to have some kind of issue, right? Issue at stake, right? Um, you can't just file a lawsuit in court hoping to resolve some kind of legal or constitutional question you'd love to get settled, right? Um, um, you know, there is, um, you know, there are legal and constitutional questions that get um, um, asked all the time that sometimes takes a long time for somebody to figure out a kind of case, figure out a client withstanding um, who will allow lawyers who are interested in them to actually litigate the case and, and, and ultimately settle them. All right. Now, um, there's a problem in all this, um, at least a problem, if you're th if, again, if you're thinking environmentally, right? The primary victims of environmental damage are often not people, right, but plants and animals. Um, that is, they are not typical clients, right, um, who can sign a kind of, right, sign on with a lawyer and hire them to represent them, all right? Um, um, which leaves um, environmental values at times at a disadvantage in our legal system, all right? Um, that is, if you want to argue that an, a proposed environmental regulation is going to hurt the timber industry, uh, there will be no shortage of parties with a clear legal standing to sue in court. All right? uh, but if you want to argue that a Forest Service policy is illegally destroying miles of forest, right, uh, you have to, figure out, have to figure out who is standing to sue, right? who is legally authorized to speak for those trees. All right? um, and so... Um, Lawyers who want to be environmental litigators sort of have to figure out, right, figure out this question, right? Um, how do I speak for these trees, right? Um, how do I represent their interests in court, all right? Getting there, all right, done it. Um, hold off to the end. We're going to have, have questions here, all right? Um, again, when um, back at the beginning, uh, earlier on in this class, um, I... Uh, I mentioned a famous quote by uh, uh, the, regu the regulators, right? A early American vigilante group um, who attacked uh, lawyers as cursed hungry caterpillars, right? Um, um, eating out the uh, bowels of the Commonwealth, right? Um, and in that, um, 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 and in that particular class, I represented right cursed hungry caterpillars through Eric Carle's. Uh, f uh, famous children's book, right? Um, and if somebody is trying to whisper to me from the front row here correctly, right? Um, if you, um, we have a parallel for environmental law in children's literature as well, right? Uh, but it's less the hungry caterpillar, I think, is this guy, right? Dr. Seuss is the Lorax, right? Um, uh, the Lorax, if you remember the story, um, was a book published in 1971. Um, that is um, just after the National Environmental Policy Act um, and just after the very first Earth Day, um, two years before the Endangered Species Act, all right? Um, um, and it told a story that um, 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 is probably familiar to many of you uh, from your childhood and or more recent babysitting gigs um, uh, with younger kids, right? Um, um, it tells a story about a character um, called the Wunsler, um, who starts to uh, start, um, who who visits a kind of uh, lovely, happy valley and begins to cut down lots of colorful na native truffula trees uh, that dominate the dominate the region um, in order to make a commercial product, a garment known as a thneed. Um, which, to be fair, in the universe of the Lorax, quote, everybody needs, everyone needs, right? Um, the Wunsler, in the process of, um, um, of, of, um, um, 
uh, <coughs> of this, uh, this sort of, once they're in the beginning of his entrepreneurial activities in the forest, right, eventually meets a woodland creature um, who doesn't care for this kind of wanton destruction of the, of the local habitat, right? The creature confronts the entrepreneur. Mister, he said with a sawdusty sneeze, I am the Lorax, I speak for the trees, all right? And again, sadly, in the you know in the story, in Dr. Seuss's story, the one sort doesn't listen to the Lorax, and eventually the trees, the woodland community they supported, and his his business and the Lorax all end up disappearing. Um, though yes, there's still some trifolia trees around at the end of the book, um, and the hope that if you uh, if we all learn from this, we'll do better the next time. All right. Now, again, this goes back to this question, right? Who gives the Lorax the right to speak for the trees? All right? Again, the truthful of the trees do not hire him, right? Never put him on retainer. Um, he asserts that he has their interests at heart, right? Uh, but does he really? All right? Um, look, right? I'm stretching here a little bit. The Lorax doesn't describe a genuine lawsuit, right? Uh, but if you represented Mr. Wunsler in court in a case called Lorax v. Wunsler, right? Uh, you'd have to ask, and it would probably be legal malpractice if you didn't, right? Um, why do you get to speak for the trees? Um, they didn't hire you. What's your claim in court, right? Aren't you just some kind of rabble-rousing third party um, who doesn't deserve standing um, in this litigation, okay? Um, and if you, uh, right, if you want to... Um, if you need evidence, right, or you want further evidence that um, it's possible to imagine the Lorax not as the friend of the trees, but, uh, but ultimately as some kind of problematic character, um, there was actual, like somebody actually published a book of counter-programming against the Lorax, right? A woman who uh, uh, was involved in the construction and uh, 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 construction industry manufacturing wood flooring, right? Uh, who created an entire kind of alternative parody kind of story um, uh, starring a tree-like thing called the guard bark um, that didn't understand that civilization dependent on the, depended upon the wise use of resources um, and ultimately threatens disaster through his kind of pro-tree anti-logging activism. All right? Um, um, And there was parallel kind of um, uh, programming and counter-programming in real life, all right? In uh, the 1960s and 1970s, as environmentalism took off, a variety of national organizations and local attorneys, the Sierra Club, the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund were some of the best known, noticed the strategic advantage that nature seemed to have in court and took a shot at defending the interests of trees and wildlife and natural beauty. Um, they went to court to force government agencies to enforce their own environmental laws, um, or even when, um, or when a well-placed interest group, even when a well-placed interest group wanted the government to look the other way. Um, they tried to block large-scale developments that they believed would be bad for ecological values. Um, but by the mid-1970s, the Sierra Club and the like uh, were soon joined by a number of pro-property rights or explicitly anti-environmentalist organizations, uh, which claimed that the environmentalists represented not the interest, real interests of trees or nature or the general public, uh, but a sort of narrow interests um, of their, their allegedly left-winging or even radical um, lawyers and members. All right. Uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation, founded by the aforementioned Ronald Zumbrun, was one of those groups. Uh, Mountain States Legal Foundation, um, founded by a Colorado brew magnate named Joseph Coors um, and a lawyer named James Watt, uh, was another. Um, at Mountain States in the 1970s, Watt made a name for himself by suing the Environmental Protection Agency um, to try to block new fuel emission standards. Uh, by defending mining companies that wanted to travel across federally protected wilderness study areas, um, and even suing the federal government for the property damage caused by herds of government-protected wild horses. Um, it seems similarly appropriate, Watt explained to his board of directors, that the public should pay fees to private landowners who can only watch hopelessly as their private property is used and destroyed by over 7,000 wild horses, which are protected as natural treasures, much the same way the cows are protected in India while people starve. Um, later on, Watt, um, 
one of Watt's innovations was trying to use um, legal ideas and legal tactics pioneered by environmentalists against them, against them right? Um, and also to try to make his own claim that he represented uh, the greater right. He represented a public interest that wasn't being represented adequately in court. Um, the interest of the average taxpayer, um, uh, the interest of the average American in a well-functioning uh, capitalist economy. All right. Watt, by the way, would later go on to become a, something of a household name and a lightning rod for further controversy uh, when President Ronald Reagan selected him as his first Secretary of Interior, um, um, a move that in certain ways um, um, ended the kind of bipartisan era of, uh, of action on environmental issues and started to turn environmentalism and anti-environmentalism into far more partisan issues, um, um, as well as a certain kind of boon to political cartoonists um, who found uh, James Watt's uh, bald head and uh, kind of um, 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 thick glasses um, unbelievably tempting to parody. Um, Cartoonist uh, portrayed Watt as a serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? Never mind the apples, let's open this place to oil and gas drilling, right? Um, um, they, um, they, de they depicted Watt alongside Reagan's uh, Environmental Protection uh, Agency Administrator, Ann Gorsuch, um, another product of the uh, Rocky Mountain conservative politics that had produced Watt. Um, as uh, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, um, also as Bo the Bonnie and Clyde of the American environment. Um, by the way, if the last name Gorsuch is familiar to you, Ann Gorsuch has some, had children, one of whom, Neil, is now on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, that's Justice, that's artist, artist, artist depiction, right, of uh, Justice Gorsuch's uh, mother. Uh, significant political figure in the politics of the 70s and 80s um, in her own right, all right? Um, though my favorite from Tony Alth of the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, um, just imagine Ronald Reagan Nas uh, National Forest um, now that James Watt uh, had become Secretary of the Interior, all right? Um, all right, getting this back from politics to standing for a second here, right? Um, American courts did eventually come up with a kind of solution to, to, uh, to the standing problem, all right? Um, over a series of cases, um, not going to go into, into law and society class, so I'm not going to go into doctrine in excruciating detail. Uh, the courts generally did not allow environmental organizations to sue on behalf of trees um, or even on behalf of themselves as membership groups. Uh, but they did start allowing uh, membership organizations to sue on behalf of a kind of specific member uh, who liked to hike or swim in the area under contention. Um, so that member, right, um, the, the group representing that member, right, who was going to suffer some damage by having his favorite hiking pass uh, demolished for a ski resort <coughs> um, um, or clear cut for timber, right, all of a sudden could be a person, right, um, who could be represented in court according to the, you know, again, the logic of rights-bearing individuals uh, that governs the U.S. legal system, all right? Um, in some cases, Congress went further than the courts were willing to go on their own um, and began to write citizen suit provisions into certain laws. Uh, the Endangered Species Act of 1973 uh, received one, one such provision which made it for a period a extraordinarily powerful um, and even surprisingly powerful um, uh, piece, uh, surprisingly powerful piece of legislation. Uh, the Endangered Species Act, as originally written, allowed any citizen of the United States uh, to sue in federal court um, uh, to uh, block actions that would endanger the habitat um, of of any, um, any species on that endangered, place on the endangered species list. Um, um, the idea originally of the act originally was to protect charismatic sort of megafauna like the American bald eagle um, or the bison. Um, but by within a few years, environmentalists figured out how to utilize this provision to 
uh, shut down partially completed dam projects they opposed um, originally for other reasons um, on behalf of previously obscure um, species of freshwater perch. All right. Um, all right. Um, there's a moment in this lecture where um, I gather people looking at me as like, Professor Decker is deeply obsessed with standing and, and some of these issues. Um, maybe he should go write a book about this, right? The fact of the matter is I did, right? It's called The Other Rights Revolution. Um, um, uh, conservative lawyers in the remaking of American government, right? Um, um, and again, it raises a... Um, um, which is not entirely right. Not ent not entirely about these issues, but um, uh, draw. Uh, but deal. But deals with a number of them in in a, in a variety of different ways, right? Um, but one I want to emphasize more for right this class, right, is not the kind of we right. Not these kind of weeds or the details of the particular kind of doctrines, uh, but this kind of ultimate uh, ultimate problem, right? Um, if you have a um, if you have a set of legal institutions that we've been examining all, all semester um, that are based in some essential kind of way on rights-bearing individuals duking it out with one another um, in court uh, with a judge sitting there as a kind of impartial, um, uh, you know, uh, impartial judge of rules, right? Um, you have a potential kind of you have a potential kind of problem to leave environmental and natural kind of issues at, at a strategic disadvantage, right? Um, and so part of bringing environmentalism to the courts was figuring out ways to sort of humanize and personalize these issues um, in ways that may or may not um, ultimately, you know, feel satisfactory to all of us, all right? One final point, right? There's a different... There's another way, there's another potential way um, around this, right? One other option, right, for holding, say, for holding polluters responsible um, after the fact uh, to create uh, deterrences against bad behavior uh, that might help us keep the environment clean in the future uh, was to figure out ways to track down the people who despoiled the environment in the first place um, and sue them under tort law for damages, right? Um, one of the things that uh, lawyers, legal thinkers, um, and environmentalists start thinking in the 60s and 1970s, right, is what do we, right, how do we make the polluters pay for everything they've done for generations uh, to us? Um, um, how do we make them pay for the damage they've done both to the earth, um, but then ultimately perhaps to other human beings? All right. Um, a toxic torque lawsuit se might seem at first like an unbelievably uh, uh, something with unbelievable potential, right? Uh, possibility to win restitution for people who've been hurt, uh, to punish bad behavior, right? Um, and possibly even to make some lawyers rich along the way. All right. We'll return to the promise and pitfalls of that strategy, though, when we come back in class on Thursday. All right. Any questions? And I somehow lost Jordan before, uh, before he had a chance there. Okay. And if you have one, raise your hand and have a... Uh... You may not have any. This is... Uh... I usually let them intersperse them throughout the, uh, the class a little bit more than we were able to today. Natalia, wonderful, yeah. I have a comment, not really a question. But okay. With the book they were reading... Yeah. Yeah. I have a comment, like not really a question, um, but the book that we are reading yeah. is like super interesting. Good. I'm really liking it. And we will be reading, right? We'll be reading and discussing it in, in, in significantly more detail after um, starting on Thursday. Okay. Um, so I'm not not foreclosing that, but there were, with a, without breaking the frame here, there are certain things I was um, I'm permitted to do here that I'm that are slightly that, that I'm doing here that are slightly different than I than we normally do in class. Um, Jeff. How do you measure the monetary damage in these cases? It just seems like oh. it's very hard to do. Look, you're, again, you're, you're sort of getting, a, getting ahead of ourselves in, uh -huh. in, in some ways, but, but um, um, 
again, one of the things I like to, one of the things the Sierra Club was trying to do was not was to prevent damage before it actually happened. Right? The Sierra Club was saying that look, there are um, there are forests that, based on our environment, right, environmental laws, we shouldn't ju- we we shouldn't be timbering in, right? Or we need to, um, the law says that before you do some kind of big project, um, uh, you have to produce something called an environmental impact statement, okay? Which is a, you know, bring on some scientists and some engineers and figure out what the impact of a, of, of a project might be, all right? Um, and then the public, right, both the public and the government can weigh the, the trade-offs involved um, uh, before it's too late, right? Before you've already destroyed the, uh, before you've dest- destroyed the, um, the natural thing that we didn't even know was there. All right. Um, um, there's the conservatives, like their critics, that sometimes try to use right use the same stuff against you. There's this this funny case I discovered um, that Pacific Legal Foundation brought. Uh, back in the 1970s, where they tried to uh, shut down the construction of a new sewage, of a new sewage treatment plant on the grounds that the uh, a couple spe- species of endangered California wildlife uh, were feasting um, feasting happily on the raw sewage that was being pumped into the Pacific Ocean. I think it was the gray whale and the brown pelican, right? Um, and that you'd be endangering their habitat by, by, by diverting the waste, all right? Um, but the, the real work of environmentalists was try to, try to forestall environmental damage b- before it happens, right? Um, when you start talking about toxic tort stuff, which we'll be doing, a, doing for a, couple, you know, a few more weeks going forward here, you're looking at private sector lawyers rather than sort of nonprofits and political kind of people uh, trying to find ways they can both uh, set a precedent that um, will help the environment and um, prove lucrative in one way or another. And there's a very different set of incentives there. Um, and we're going to have to tease out what those different kinds of incentives make possible and where, where they may possibly lead people astray. Does that help? Okay. Anyone else? Sam over there. Going back to like the Lorax metaphor. Sure. Um, is there a case to be made there for not talking for the trees, but also the aspect of the plot, as I'm well-versed in Dr. Seuss, okay. um, <laughs> is like it ruins the habitat of the fish and the birds can't live there anymore and these bear things. And so the idea that, and like the food source that's in the, the trees. So is there like... Right, and, 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 right. And, and look, in, in, in Dr. Seuss land, you can actually have talking animals that could exactly. probably hire that. Right, um, look, it's a it, it, it's a stretch that's meant to be a kind of, right. It's a kind of um, what I mean is both a kind of thought experiment, but also as a piece of culture that comes out at a moment when people are actually grappling with these issues more generally, right? Um, and um, um, Again, the Lorax is fine, right, if you can come up with um, some, um, again, some rights-bearing individual that can claim it has a, a interest in this, right? Um, and who can say, look, this is my, I signed a contract with the Lorax to represent my interests, right? Uh, he, he is my advocate in court here, okay? Um, uh, which prevents some other, right, uh, uh, Dr. Seuss car- a, pale, a pair of pale green pants with nobody inside them, for instance, from coming along and saying, no, I represent the, the truffle trees. I know, I know their best interests here. Um, I should be their advocate, right? Um, and uh, the, the way the courts re- end up resolving this is in part saying, you know, Coming up with some st- right standards by which, um, uh, in many cases, in natural environmental values can get a hearing in court. In part by going through some person, some human who has some interest in right interest is being harmed in that kind of natural stuff without really allowing anybody you know figuring out who can actually re- represent nature in a more straightforward way. Uh, but that allows that open right a that kind of um, 
those kind of standings are open to being revised both by legislatures that write or repeal citizen uh, suit uh, uh, language in, in, in statutory law um, and by Supreme Courts that can scale back as well as expand the law of environmental standing, uh, which the Supreme Court has considerably since the, since the 1970s. Um, um, it also, and again, this was one of, you know, uh, one of my, one of my peculiar obsessions in part because I wrote a book not only about sort of conservative lawyers and legal activism, uh, but on the ways that their, um, their activism shaped what the, um, regulatory state could or could not do, um, uh, going forward, right? Um, is that you end up opening the courts to a bunch, right? You end up inevitably opening to the, the courts to a bunch of different people with different kinds of interests, right? Um, who then can compete in certain ways over who really, uh, who really speaks for the public, who really speaks for whom, right? Um, that can make uh, certain kinds of litigation seem really complicated, convoluted, and confusing. Confu right? You open up the courts to people who kind of want to muck up the issue sometimes as much as uh, settle them. That makes sense? Anyone else? All right. Thank you very much. Join us every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern as we join students in college classrooms to hear lectures on topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. Lectures in History are also available as podcasts. Visit our website, cspan.org slash